This is Nicole Deffenbaugh. If you are enjoying the podcast, we invite you to tell your friends and family and like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. It was another regular day at the clinic and um, I was quite happy that I was running on schedule. It doesn't happen very often. And I knock the door, I look at this patient's chart and see that they have had a recent procedure, a major one you know, for their atrial fibrillation. And I haven't met this patient before, so it was the first time I was meeting them. So I did a little bit of background reading and figuring out, oh wow, this is a lot that's been going on. Um, and it looks like they were otherwise in pretty good health prior to this episode. So I walk in uh, feeling a um, little prepared, better prepared for this uh, visit. Um, and um, I go in, introduce myself and smile and start saying, so, you know, how did this procedure go for you? Um, so do you, you know, how, how do you feel about it? And I had them reply to me saying, yeah, I think it went well. Can you look in my chart and tell me uh, what exactly happened? And, and that's when I was like, so what is your understanding of what happened? And they replied, uh, I don't really know. Welcome to Health Stories. These are real stories inside the healthcare system. In this podcast, we invite you, the listener, to hear the real life stories of clinicians and patients. And what I do is I ask the interviewees to reflect on their experiences, share their insights, tips, and suggestions for all of us to better navigate our very complex U.S. healthcare system. I'm Nicole Deffenbaugh. And today I'm joined by Dr. Ashwini, who's going to talk about health literacy. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ashwini. Thank you, Nicole. Okay. Glad to be here. Thank you. So you're telling us a story about a patient who had AFib. So what's afibrillation again? That's correct. So atrial fibrillation, in a common way of uh, how I try to explain it to my patients, is um, when the rhythm or the electrical system in their heart uh, goes out of control. Mm. So there's a nice rhythm to this electrical system in their heart. And when that is off, and usually when it goes very fast um, into what I also say is a funky rhythm, that is atrial fibrillation in common man's you know, terms. Yeah, and it sounds like the patient had no idea what procedure they had. So what I... I mean, it, it's interesting for me, I'm even asking you, like, what exactly is atrial fibrillation? We've seen the machines around, right? That's and right. I consider myself a health literate person, which apparently I'm not. Um, and so how, <laughs> so what do you do when you find out a patient has no idea what just happened to them? Sure. So the first thing I usually ask them is, um, tell me what you know about this. You know, as we know with learners, it's good to know where they're starting from and then help them build upon what they already know. Okay. Uh, for example, in this patient, they had no idea what it was. The, they even knew, their condition? Um, no, I mean, it, it just sounded familiar, but it was 
I know there was something wrong with my heart that I had to go in and then I came back and they told me I was feeling better. Wow. Okay. That was about the understanding and I was sitting in the clinic thinking, wow. So they consented for a procedure. It was an informed consent. And uh, this is to simplify it again, you know, to uh, folks who are listening, it was where they pretty much shocked her and got the rhythm back uh, into, you know, more controlled rhythm. It was going way too fast and we couldn't control it with medications. And that's the reason why, you know, they had to get the procedure. So this person's heart stopped? Yes. It okay. actually stopped momentarily before they could reset it. Okay. So I pretty much explained to her saying, well, uh, let's look at it as first starting off saying it's the electrical system of the heart. You know, everyone's familiar with a heart attack. So did I have a heart attack was the other question that comes up often. Because when you think of heart, that's, that's what everyone knows. And with her, um, I had to first say, okay, there's the electrical system and there's the plumbing in the heart. So this was something with the electrical system where we wanted to you know have a nice rhythm and that's the heartbeat it keeps up with that nice rhythm and there's a normal rate to it so what happened with your uh, you know so it's like nice a nice ballet or a tap there's a nice rhythm to it not too fast not too slow and with this patient I um, told them that their rhythm did this kind of funk and it was really fast, so fast that the heart couldn't pump enough, which is why it was becoming a problem. And we tried to manage it with medicines, but the medicines wouldn't help. And that's why they had to go in for this procedure. It was delightful to see that moment of, oh, that's what happened with me. And uh, that was her moment of you know, realization that, okay, which is also when I asked, help me understand how much of this you know makes sense and can you you know repeat back to me what you think makes sense or doesn't and she actually did uh, you know um, answer back pretty much with a good understanding of what happened how long do you think this person had this condition and how long after the procedure in, in other words yeah how long did they not know what was actually happening then to them um, I would, looking back at their chart and, um, you know, just from what I know, I would say about three months. Okay. From the time of diagnosis to when they went through the whole procedure. Wow. So I want to take a moment to go back for our listeners and, and define health literacy. I know the U.S. Department of Health and Services, so having done a little research in preparation for this, says that about 12% 12% of the population is considered to be health literate or even proficient. Um, the ability to act on information to live healthier lives. And uh, there are these components, the National Network of Libraries of Medicine talk about reading, writing, speaking, listening, uh, numeracy. These are the different components of, of being health literate. So 12% is not a lot. Um, I, I, I mean, how many of us are really health literate? And uh, would you consider yourself a health literate person, even as a physician? <laughs> I would say, as a physician, maybe most of the time, but I can't say every, every single time. Yeah. 
So can you tell us a little bit more about um, health literacy and your experiences with it? Have you had other patients? I'm assuming you have. Oh yes, oh yes, um, plenty of them. And um, I think the whole awareness around health literacy um, was heightened for me personally as a physician. Two years into me starting practice as an independent physician, you know, after residency this is, so it was almost like five years of med school plus another five years of residency plus practice, where one day I had uh, this patient who had non-compliance written all over their chart and uh, I had inherited from uh, the previous, you know, physician who had left. So there's a lot of history there and you know there's a lot of concerns about them not taking their medicines right uh, we don't know what else to do um, we have like care teams to help them we have had the pharmacists work with them we've tried to keep it culturally competent you know competent and still we're struggling with this and uh, this was a day where i was speaking to them and i was like you know Maybe I'll write it in a different way in your instructions this time. Remember, we, we wrote this down, we talked about this, and this is how it's supposed to be, you know. And I thought I was taking the extra time, and I, I really, you know, was trying to connect with them. And that's when the patient just said, oh, this, everyone gives me so many instructions, and, you know, I, it's so hard to follow and keep up with all these appointments, and I can barely read or write. Mm. Which was the moment where I was like, you know, I, and I'm thinking in my head right there, wait a minute, what did you just say? Did you just say I can barely read or write? Um, that's, that's when I realized I have to take a step backwards and say, okay, I just need to look at this in a whole new, you know, it's a whole different view right now. Um, it's a whole different perspective from for me. And it's, uh, I can even say it's, at this point, you know, we've been blaming this person for so long for not being compliant with their plan while the actual fault is in us because we haven't been providing the right information, you know, in the right way. Um, so that was when I asked them, so help me understand, you know, you just mentioned you can't read or write. So what's your highest level of education? And uh, this person replied saying, oh, I barely made it through fifth grade. Mm. And a lot of our health education materials are actually usually designed around sixth grade level. And that most of them are in English. So you yeah, have the you know, cultural differences and all there that makes it harder. Um, so that was a moment of realization for me. And that's also when this patient went on to tell me more saying, I can actually only understand numbers. I can, I can't, yes, I've somehow made it through fifth grade in my country, but um, I can't really read or write. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is when, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about, oh my God, all these surgeries that they've been through, uh, all these years of multiple physician visits, all these years of that long list of medical problems and, you know, medicines on their um, chart, which is so hard for, you know, me as a primary care physician sometimes to keep up with. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine what it's like for this person. Okay. So, um, yeah, that, that was the one encounter that I will, uh, I don't think I'll ever forget. 
And since then, you know, made it a habit to ask every new patient and have uh, this information in all my patients chart about their highest level of education. And I just, you know, courteously asked them, do you have any difficulty understanding, um, you know, the health education materials that we give you? Uh, is it easy to read? Is it easy to understand? Do you have any questions? And that's when I have a better understanding of, you know, where they're at. Because when I think of health literacy, I mean, I think the assumption is your health literacy in the language in which you're receiving the care. Mm -hmm. So here, if you <clears throat> are being provided care by a physician who speaks English, <laughs> mm -hmm. and English is not your first language, or you don't even feel proficient in the language that the two of you are speaking, mm -hmm. you're already set up for challenges, right? So I, I think back to the importance of having clinicians who speak multiple languages mm -hmm. in order to be able to interact with patients who are from diverse populations. Um, and thinking about then the challenges of being proficient in a particular language. So they might be proficient in Spanish because that's where they grew up, but that doesn't make them proficient necessarily in a different language. Mm -hmm. um, so for you, knowing that your background, English, was not your first language. That's right. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you, um, I think even going to medical school and, in, in English, right? Was it in English? Yes, medical okay. school was, so was in English. What was that like for you? Um, <laughs> it was interesting because it, um, it was almost like everything uh, I read or learned, I had to kind of translate it into English, you know, because uh, as they say, um, your first language is probably the language you think in. Um, and uh, for me, that is Konkani, you know, the language that I speak at home. And uh, so um, it, it felt like there was an additional layer of, you know, understanding and also learning to pronounce those words right those long medical terms right and trying to read it in english comprehend it in english and back where i went to med school there were multiple different languages that our patients spoke and i spoke i speak a few different languages there and um, trying to say that in their language because you don't really have all the words sometimes <laughs> um, was a challenge but I'm glad I had that exercise because I feel like it's continued to help me through and um, you know even coming here there was also my um, education was more uh, based on the British English and you know their style so coming to the American system and uh, learning that even some words are spelled differently <laughs> And, uh, you know, language, when we talk about it, it's, it also includes body language. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there was a lot of that that I had to change. And um, I can actually share an, uh, a funny anecdote that happened at home when I was preparing for my USMLE. Uh, so my husband was playing patient and uh, I had to practice my clinical scenarios with him because that was part of, uh, you know, our clinical exam. And what we were scored on was also how you know, our professionalism, how were we with the patient? So I wanted his feedback. And he's been in the US, you know, much longer than I've been there. And I remember um, him patiently going through the session and in the end, a uh, big part of my feedback was that um, <laughs> I use my hands a lot and my head a lot, like an Indian gestures. 
Like, do you get it? And I'm, I'm getting closer with my head, you know, the head bobbing starts. Or is it a yes or a no? So that's when he reminded me that I need to tone that down a little bit and speak up louder uh, and be more clear and talk slowly. Because when I do get nervous, I used to go very quickly and taper the volume down very quickly, you know, part of it. So, um, so there were many different levels of, you know, language there that I had to process. Interesting. Um, and over the years, because a lot of my patients have been English speaking, I feel more comfortable with it right now. Um, and I never was, but I was back home or even in med school because that wasn't the language that I spoke every day. Um, and over the years now, it's it's become such that sometimes with my kids, I tend to talk English rather than our own language. Mm. And you know, so it's it's amazing how uh, a lot of it also changes or you know blends in with who you hang out with. It. Mm-hmm. So how many languages do you know? Can you speak? <coughs> Uh, read, understand, <laughs> I guess there are different levels. Uh, yes, I would say three different Indian languages, fluent, uh, I would say very fluent, and uh, another additional two in India that I understand. And Spanish, some basic, and I speak some basic Spanish. Okay. Yeah. So, just so let our listeners know there's some um, doors closing and some, some noises. You're going to hear some, some, yep, there goes another door. So I'm sorry, so five or six you said? Yeah. Um, so do you have patients that speak some of those languages? Um, a few. It's probably because of the population we serve. Um, but Spanish, yes, quite a few. So um, what, what would you say is the um, difference between um, health literacy and just literacy in general? What's the difference between the two? Sure. So when we talk about just literacy, it's about a person's ability to read and write. Uh, you know, can you read this basic word, or can you write your name and um, maybe a simple sentence? That's just literacy. When it comes to health literacy, I think it um, adds a layer of complexity there because it's not just about reading or writing, but it's also about comprehending. Uh, what you're reading and writing and the ability to make decisions based on what you just read or you know uh, what you just wrote and if we add another layer of complexity uh, which is not you know it's not like you're going to the grocery store and uh, or you're just going out shopping this is um, medical uh, stuff you know it's like medical language which is already complex in itself so that's what health literacy, you know, uh, addresses, or that's what uh, we mean by health literacy. It's one's ability to obtain, process, and understand basic health information to make, um, you know, understandable health decisions, like uh, their own health decisions. So that's uh, health literacy. Isn't there a a need for medical translators? Is that something that you deal with a lot? uh... Oh yes, we have a lot of, um, especially like I said, for our Spanish-speaking patients, uh, medical interpreters, Mm -hmm. and uh, there's definitely a big need for it. And uh, there are also times where we find printable health information, uh, even though it's in a basic language, it's usually in English, um, and not many websites have links to other languages. 
As we were about to transition into um, talking about the care and what patients can do, um, just thinking about people who are listening, because I had somebody recently come to me and say, you know, I speak different languages. I'm bilingual. So they were bilingual, but many people are multilingual like yourself. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, have you considered going into medical translation? Um, I, they hadn't even considered it, and I know that there's definitely a need for it. Um, there's some training, of course, that's involved, yes. uh, but it's definitely a growing area and a need that uh, exists. And so if, if you're looking for a position or you know somebody who's wanting to be in the um, healthcare field and speaks multiple languages, it's definitely Absolutely. Uh, a need. Yeah. So as we talk about um, patients who in that one example, we have a patient who is, uh, doesn't have uh, a comprehension beyond fifth grade mm -hmm. level. Mm -hmm. um, the other patient, um, he or she, in terms of their AFib, not understanding their procedure. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about all of us who are listening, though, who have had those moments where we think we understand, but we really don't. Mm -hmm. not, I'm not really sure that I understand what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, what are some suggestions that you offer for us if we're in a, any sort of clinical encounter and we don't really know, but we don't want to sound stupid for not knowing? <laughs> um, wow, that's a great question. And I'm thinking, well, what would I do? Uh, because I see, uh, you know, that could happen. I would just say, you know, ask the question again or ask what you don't understand. and. At the end of the day, it's about your health, and you are, you know, signing away on a piece of paper or like consenting to treatment, and it's your right, more than importantly, to know, uh, you know, what to expect or what's happening. So um, just stand up for yourself and, uh, you know, um, fight for your right. I would say. What do you do though, because I've, I've heard this too and experienced it myself, what do you do when the clinician is um, aggravated or annoyed? You can tell, it's like I have another question. It just, it's, I, I actually heard someone say, uh, well, it's on your written information. It's in the handout that you're going to get. It's, it's sort of that they've diagnosed, yep. they're offering treatment, and they're done. Th this is what you need to do. True. This is the end of the visit that usually the information of what they want the patient to do, this is where this comes in as at the end. True. The clinician is trying to wrap everything up and you're like, wait a minute, what? And I need to get out of there too, right? So True. I've got to get going. True. What, what should we all be doing in that moment? Um, what a great question. I would say there's actually um, something both parties need to do. So those of us who are listening and not um, clinicians, I would say, just say, I'm sorry, doctor. I mean, I, I'm really thankful that you took the time um, to let me know what's going on, but I don't fully understand this part. Can you please help me? Or should I just call back or even email you? You know, we have my LEHN now. Uh, or keep in touch through patient portal so I can fully understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, I liked how you started it with thank you for so so offering the acknowledgement thank you for taking the time to explain however I, I don't quite understand what would be the best way to get this information 
Um, so those are really good insights for us. I want to go all the way back to before the appointment even starts. One of my favorite questions to ask, because I hear this a lot from both physicians, um, clinicians, and patients, is the idea of being an informed patient. So when you have some symptoms, you have a sore throat, you go online, Mm -hmm. um, there are many different sites you can go to, WebMD is an example, that you're like, okay, so you can put in your symptoms and it gives possible diagnoses or possible conditions for your symptoms. Um, we, I, I do it, I've done it, mm -hmm. I'm sure other people, have you ever done that? I have to ask. I have you to. have? Okay. <laughs> we won't tell anyone. Um, so we've all done it and even, even mm -hmm. you as a physician, you do it. Mm -hmm. um, is this a good thing or a bad thing? And, and is it something that you should or should not share with your physician? Um, I would say it's, it's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It's uh, more of a gray zone. Uh, let's put it that way, because uh, I mean, information is power. I feel like it's it's good to be informed. Uh, what are you going to do with it? Is uh, you know how do we rationally uh, react to what we read? Is what's you know important. So, from my experience and my own personal preference with my patients, I'm okay with you going and looking things up. Um, I'm actually glad you're, you know, concerned about your health and you just want to know. And it's not so easy always to get in touch with your clinician right at the moment when you want to know. Um, I would say if there's something that you're worried from what you read, please do discuss it with, you know, your uh, physician or your clinician. Uh, I personally love it when patients bring it up and I actually even thank them for sharing it with me. Um, and I tell them I'm, I'm, I'm totally okay with you doing that um, you know if there's something there that you're worried about that you're concerned um, you know just let me know uh, ultimately it's about relationship-centered care you know we are here to work as a team together to make in the best interest of the patient and a lot of times I find that um, you know just being open with them that way and even for the patients it's nice that way if I'm having a rush day and maybe there's a chance that I didn't think of the other possible diagnosis, but your reading may have very well, you know, helped me pause and say, oh yeah, I didn't think about that. You know what, you're right, let's let's go ahead and explore that as well. So it could go either ways uh, versus the other patient where the whole visit could be about, I'm so anxious about what I read. Could this be this real thing? Can I get an MRI of my brain right now? But what do you do when the person is completely convinced that they have a brain tumor and they need an MRI? <clears throat> you know, how, how do you work with that? Well, the first thing is to acknowledge that their fever is real, um, you know, and that, you know, is, is medicine perfect? Well, not really. Uh, there's nothing that's 100% in medicine other than life and death. That's what I usually tell my patients, too. So, okay, let's consider it, you know, usually start with that. And uh, we go through the most likely cause of what this could be versus um, the least likely cause. And then I usually talk to them about, so why it may or may not be what they're thinking it is. Mm -hmm. And then say, how about we start with these? And then if we really don't have answers or you know, then maybe we can think about what you suggested. So that these being the more common, that's the, right, the more probable answers. So you're going to start with the more likely things, and then 
Yes. If that doesn't show up, then you go down the list of least likely. So you don't, you're not taking anything off the table per se. Mm-hmm. All the differential diagnoses are out there. That's right. Um, That's how medicine is. So you're not saying, no, there's no way it could be that. Well, in some probably <laughs> very rare instances where you're just telling me, uh, you know, like, oh, my God, um, clearly it's... Uh, it's like my eye is bothering me, but I'm worried about my toe falling off. Right, you know, right, something, right, something right. like that. Outrageous, <laughs> like that. But everywhere else, there's and the way medicine works, there could be a connection. Yeah. Uh, so um, I don't think I can always say I'm hundred percent sure um, because am I really? I don't know. Um, you know, and that's that's how medicine is. So I usually use the words. There's a very very small likelihood of that. Um, it is very, very unlikely. So how about we start with this, and then you the, know, the the more likely, the more likely, yes, causes, and then see where we go. Yeah. Is it helpful to know where the source came from? Is it helpful to know it that is. we got it from a neighbor versus online versus it is. family it is. member? Absolutely. I mean, um, as we know, you know, a big part of health, uh, what determines health, is uh, you know the, the different social determinants. And it's good to know if it's the environment, uh, uh, you know, is it a habit that they're always on it, uh, on their WebMD, or is this something that they found a pamphlet for, or is there, you know, so, yeah, that's always helpful. I do ask them that. And if it's usually like a general blog spot or, oh, my friend had this experience, then, you know, we, we talk about that too, about, uh, you know, how valid could that be? or give them perspective about, well, this is my opinion and that's your friend's opinion and I'll let you, you know, uh, weigh which one you want to weigh heavier or not. So any other advice that you can offer us um, as patients who are interested in being more literate about, health literate about our conditions and, and everything else when we go into a provider's office? Sure. Um, so one thing is, again, you know, don't hesitate to ask uh, for a better understanding of what we tell you. Um, because in, in some ways I can kind of go back a little bit and say, uh, if you think about where we are coming from, the medical professionals, we have been immersed in the medical world from medical school through training and then practicing after, which is a good eight to nine years of our lives. So it's almost like a whole different world where we learned this whole new medical language and we had to. (laughs) So now we are also working to simplify that. So, you know, just knowing where we are coming from can also tell you that, maybe make you feel a little better that, oh, I know where you're coming from, but hey doc, please help me make more sense of this. Mm -hmm. Simplify this for me. Uh, in some ways, I think as medical professionals, we need to work more on that too. And uh, that'll be a good reminder if you share that with us. So ask questions. Yep. Ask to simplify something that you don't understand. Yes. Even if you're embarrassed, it's better to ask. I, when I do community talks, I usually say it's better safe. <laughs> this is horrible, but I say something to the effect of better safe than dead. Yeah. Because there could be, I know you're laughing, but there there could be um, a mix-up in medications, allergies, right. that, you know, so it's better to ask the question. 
if you do go online um, or have outside information, it's helpful to share where you got it yes. so that we have some context mm -hmm. to where that information came from and what the concerns are with that. So those are all really good suggestions. Any other advice that you have um, for the patient? Um, one other thing which is my favorite uh, with patients is sometimes, um, depending on what type of a learner you are, and some of us may not know, just ask us to draw and explain things better to you. So do you do you draw for your patients? Oh, I love it. And my oh. nurses are always mad because there's so many drawings all over the sheets that they put on the exam table sometimes. You draw on the exam table sheets, okay. Yeah, because that's like, the, that's like the biggest sheet we have out there. So, <laughs> And we have crayons for kids, so sometimes I'm using them. And um, I've uh, personally had a great response from my patients, so that's, that's one of my uh, favorite things to do at visits sometimes. Well, I couldn't help but talk, when you were talking about how you were prepping for USMLE with your partner and the feedback was how large your expressions were in your hands and your head nodding, um, thinking about though how helpful that probably is because nonverbal communication can be a fabulous medium in order to convey what you're trying to say. You hold up two fingers for two. Yeah. as opposed to saying it, 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 it um, actually enhances and, and helps clarify. That's true. Uh, and that actually makes sense. If you are trying to talk to somebody and you have different um, backgrounds, linguistic backgrounds, um, differences in understanding medical jargon, what better way than to use nonverbals? And so the fact that you draw and the fact that you use your body language totally makes sense to me. Do you find that that also helps with your patients when you're using your body and your nonverbals um, um, and enhancing them? Yes, uh, I do. And like I said, over the years, that's something that I've worked on. And um, how I sit, how I face them, what my expression says, uh, they pick up on it quite immediately. And the whole message could go one way or the other, depending on how I present myself. So... Um, one of the negative experiences, or a reminder for me, I should say, probably, and not necessarily a negative experience, uh, was when my patient said, at the end of the visit, I thought it went well, she, she ended it saying, are you okay? You don't seem yourself today. <laughs> so that's when I told her, well, thank you for noticing. Yes, I'm just recovering from this, but I know I'm going to feel better. Um, was there any reason that you know, this may have affected our visit today. And she was like, yeah, throughout the visit, I was wondering why you looked so tired. I didn't know if you were interested in this visit today. Um, wow. So there you go, the non-verbal cues uh, that we, you know, and that was like completely unintentional, <laughs> um, do matter. And maybe everything that I said really didn't matter, irrespective of her, uh, you know, literacy level at that point, uh, because, what I did was so distracting that everything else was missed. Yeah, she was assessing your health, is what it sounds like. She was <laughs> she like, well, was. you don't look so good today. What's going on? <laughs> well, but uh, it's, it's interesting, though, that this patient um, mentioned it at the end, that, uh, that I, I named it. I was very glad that she did. Yeah. It well, it, it, it points to the, um, and I don't have the statistic right in front of me, but um, there's a lot of uh, citations, references, that point to how patients watch nonverbals more. Um, and it makes sense in this conversation about health literacy because if you don't understand the medical jargon, yep. you're going to watch body language. And so most patients watch 
physician body language more than they really listen to and understand what's coming out of their mouths. Um, so that notion of sort of talking heads, yep. right, as you're trying to convey, like you, I, I love that explanation of you have almost 10 years of medical education learning this whole world of um, biomedicine and science and learning a whole new language and now you have to go and translate it back That's to right. individuals who don't understand. So the last thing I want to ask about is, so how do you do that? What advice would you give for any clinician who's listening? Uh, who, you know, things that you've learned over the years from your own experiences, having to translate and, and knowing multiple languages, uh, and then also in your years as being a physician. Sure. Um, so as I mentioned uh, before, some of them is first, um, let's say, know where your patient's at. Know where their, you know, level of literacy is at or health literacy is at. And that's something that I um, consciously put in their chart, in their social documentation. So if I'm seeing somebody new or this is a patient I haven't seen for a while, it's a good reminder of, okay, so what language am I talking today? You know, am I going to be drawing? Do they like it when I draw? Or am I going to talk with very simple, short uh, you know, sentences? Or is there someone who's proficient and doesn't want the you know the basic language and say it just just use the terms I know what they mean mm -hmm. so um, I would say start with knowing your patient and um, if you are still someone new like uh, how I was when I even had that realization from my patients I would say hopefully this serves as a good reminder of how we um, you know, sometimes maybe label our patients non-compliant when actually we may not be compliant with the care that we are providing for them. So um, just try to switch it around and see what else can I do? You know, a lot of us go through that, what else can I do to help this patient? Maybe this is something that you can do and address. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, you know, we're here for our patients. So Yes, we are rushed. Yes, we have to really catch up on that schedule. Oh my God, I really don't have the time. Why? You know, those may be the questions that come up when, as you mentioned earlier, you know, um, but doctor, can you help me understand this better? But if you think about it, if you gave a whole 20 minutes and none of it made sense, you know, what's the point? If you can actually spend maybe an additional five minutes simplifying it, it's gonna make a lot more sense and actually help that patient so much more that hopefully they won't call your nurses five times later or you know keep emailing you because they really didn't understand what you said. Yeah. Um, so is it also helpful then to be able to check in with the patient? Did you understand? Is there anything I said that isn't clear? That's correct. Um, I also heard you say earlier, um, so help me understand if I was clear. Yes. So the, Can you repeat back? That's right, the teach back method, okay. as we say. So you know, I say something which I think is crucial. And um, so for clinicians, I would say, yeah, don't use the teach back method. I don't think we use it as often as we think we should be. And um, patients actually appreciate that. So at least from my experience, they do. So um, yeah, use that more often. So get to know your patients, check in, ask questions, ask if you're making any sense, yeah, um, which is I'm sure is a humbling experience, but but that's a good way to check in and, and find out what they know. 
Um, and like you said with the other patient, to find out what their level of literacy is, right. um, what they understand and what their preferences are. So, excellent. Well, thank you so much for all of your tips and insights and suggestions. Um, it's a fascinating topic um, because I think we all, and you admitted yourself, all, <laughs> all of us, um, don't necessarily always understand the medical world and all of the words and definitions that were thrown all the time. And so good reminders about um, really finding out the person that you're talking to, asking questions, um, and uh, reminders that there are medical translators needed all the time. That's right. Any other tidbits of information, words of wisdom um, that you would like to offer the listener? Um, I think at the end of the day, like I said before, um, when we see it as us as a team, uh, the patient and the clinician, and um, kind of trying to uh, help patients remove that, you know, kind of forget or uh, hopefully you know, cover up that hierarchy that is kind of assumed that, oh, the doctor's up there, I don't want to, you know, uh, cause any trouble or I don't want to look silly in front of my doctor and realize that it's in the best interest of our patients, then you know, kind of following and trying to understand them better and what they say and what they do will make it easier for all of us. So I'm glad uh, that uh, I get to do that and um, also listen to your patients. I would say that I've learned a lot from my patients, a lot that medical school or uh, you know, NAR, my residency training has taught me. It's my patients have taught me a lot and I continue to learn a lot and uh, I'm really grateful and thankful for that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast, Dr. Ashwini. Thank you, Nicole. It's been a pleasure to be here. And thank you to the listener for listening in on this podcast and the whole series. If you'd like to see more, uh, we are on Facebook, so please like us there and share with your friends, family, loved ones. Uh, so that they can hear these stories as well. Thank you for joining us today. This is Health Stories. <laughs>